Hello, welcome to North Douglas Church Online today, and this is part four of Making the Best of Tough Times. I'm preaching from the book of Daniel, and we're going to look into chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that is sent from God to reveal some things to him, and he calls on Daniel to interpret that dream. This message today is entitled, Resisting Pride and Arrogance. We're going to see some things that come up in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, the character of Nebuchadnezzar, that God wants to address. And I think it's relevant to us today. At the end of today's message, we are going to share communion. So if you'd like to gather some emblems, some juice and a cracker, and uh, you can follow along with me and participate. I want to remind you that along with all the other messages in this series, you can find this message about pride and arrogance. You can find it on our Facebook page, our YouTube channel, and on podcast, as well as looking on our website, northdouglaschurch.com. You can find all the information there. If you are looking for prayer, then please send a message, send an email to prayer at northdouglaschurch.com, and we'll be able to relate that to the prayer team and pray over your request. Today, I want to just review about what we've been talking about in the book of Daniel. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he had taken over huge swaths of land. He had taken over many different countries, including the nation of Judah. And in doing so, he took people captive and uh, exiled them back into the land of Babylon to be used for his kingdom's sake. And so he took the wisest, the best, the nobles, the smartest people out of Judah and was training some of them to be of use in his court. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were all part of that program to become uh, the king's servants there in Babylon. Now, of course, Daniel and his friends were not where they wanted to be. They wanted to be at home in Judah. They wanted to be able to serve God in their nation. But Jeremiah the prophet had foretold that God would send them into exile, and so that is where they found themselves. And they were to do the best that they could do uh, in the midst of those circumstances, serving the king of Babylon. And so in Daniel chapter 1, we find Daniel and his friends making a choice that they did not want to defile themselves with the king's food, so they asked for special permission in order to be able to be faithful to God and yet still do what the king of Babylon wanted. In the end, God blessed them with wisdom and uh, with understanding so that they could then be of great service to the king of Babylon. And they were appointed to high places within the administration, within the government. In Daniel chapter 2, we see a very difficult time when Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream and he asked his astrologers and magicians and all of the philosophers to be able to not only uh, tell him what the dream meant, he wanted them to tell him what the dream was. And so no one, of course, could do that except for Daniel. Daniel prayed for a revelation. God gave him the revelation and the understanding of what it meant was able to tell that to the king. And in the course of those things, the king elevated Daniel to the highest place uh, of administrator in the kingdom. He became head over all of the philosophers, advisors, and magicians, and astrologers. He became like the the second-in-command person within Babylon for those, those years. 
In Daniel chapter 3, we see that the, the king had set up this great idol, this massive gold idol, and asked all of his officials to bow down to it. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to bow down, and they simply refused. They simply said, that's not the way we serve our God. And even if we are thrown into a fiery furnace, God can rescue us. So the king was so mad, Nebuchadnezzar threw them in that fiery furnace, and lo and behold, there was a fourth person that appeared in that fire and not only rescued uh, the friends of Daniel, but ultimately they were not burned. They were not even smelling of smoke when they came out of that fire. And God revealed a, a mystery, revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar, showed himself the power and the miraculous. And so Nebuchadnezzar actually praised God because of what he had witnessed. And in chapter four, we come to this place of uh, the king having this dream and once again not being able to understand it calls Daniel to come and uh, interpret this dream for him and Daniel is afraid because of what this dream really has to say about the king personally as we deal with the whole issue of pride and arrogance. So let me as we talk about pride and arrogance, let me start with this little story before we dig into Daniel chapter 4 and the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. There was this little boy that was uh, overheard talking to himself as he marched out onto this field. He was uh, going into this field to play baseball. He was wearing his cap. He had a, a mitt and a ball and a bat and he was going out into the field and he was heard saying, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And then he would take his ball and he threw it up in the air and he swung and he missed. And he called out, strike one. Undaunted, he picked up the ball and he looked at it and said, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he threw that ball up in the air and he swung and he missed. And he called strike two. Boy, you know, this time he really had to, to think about what he was doing and he, he spit on his hands and rubbed them together and grabbed that bat and picked up that ball and he said, I am the greatest hitter in the world and he threw that ball up and he swung and he missed and then he shouted out, strike three, wow, I am the greatest pitcher in the world. I tell you that story because it reminds me of human nature, that for some reason we always want to be the greatest. We always want to accomplish, the, the, be the most successful at the things that we're doing to the point where other people recognize us as the greatest. Even Jesus' disciples uh, were arguing along the road and uh, saying, who is the greatest amongst them? And Jesus had to correct them uh, about their attitude. It seems like there are lots of people in this world that they will fight for that prestigious uh, title of being the greatest, sometimes to the point of even bullying or putting people down so that they look better in, in the light of the people that they're around. And we all know that that is uh, not a good attitude to have. It's not a good way to live. But there's this pride and arrogance that comes out of us when we strive to be the greatest. Now, let me 
just define some things, some terminology for you, because pride and arrogance are related, but they're not exactly the same. You see, pride is a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements, whereas arrogance is showing an offensive attitude of superiority. Now, we can, we can understand how pride is very personal and we, we become puffed up with what we have done and we're, we're glad about our accomplishments. In a lot of ways, that's a normal kind of confidence that people have. But you can see how pride could get out of control, how it could get out of hand as people become more and more uh, pleased and, and strive after that pleasure uh, fulfillment in their life of what they've accomplished. And so some people become driven, some people become, uh, you know, longing after that award and that pat on the back. Whereas arrogance is this lording it over people. This is superiority that becomes really offensive to others because uh, it's when someone considers them better than everyone else and then they make everyone else feel small. And so these two things are related, both pride and arrogance. This is what the Bible says in Proverbs about, about pride. It says, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall, better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. And you see, this becomes the problem, is that pride and arrogance can overcome someone's life and be, can, can become the detrimental factor even in their relationship with God. And this is where we come into Daniel chapter 4 and Nebuchadnezzar's story. Nebuchadnezzar had seen some of the things that God could do in dealing with Daniel and his friends. And now God reveals a dream to Nebuchadnezzar. And in the course of this dream, he is concerned and not understanding. And so he calls Daniel to come and says, uh, can you tell me the meaning of this dream? None of the other magicians or astrologers seem to be able to interpret this dream. And so this is the dream, as Daniel was um, being told this in Nebuchadnezzar's own words. This is, uh, this is the, the summary of this dream. You see, the king dreamed about this large tree. It grew so large and tall that it was uh, revealed to the entire world. Everyone could see it. And the animals benefited from this tree. They could come around under its shade. The, the tree produced fruit that could feed the whole world. And then this heavenly messenger came and with a loud shout commanded that the tree be cut down. The fruit would be scattered. The animals that were enjoying the shade of the tree would be scattered and that the stump of this tree would be bound for seven seasons of time, which turned out to be seven years. It would be bound in iron, it would be shackled, and it would be subject to the elements and to the dew that would fall from heaven. And he was very disturbed, the king, by this dream. And he asked Daniel to interpret, and Daniel was disturbed. He was afraid to tell the king what this dream actually meant, because the dream was about the king. And in fact, the king could tell that Daniel was disturbed and that there were some problems, and so... He said to Daniel, you've got to tell me, even if it's difficult, tell me what the meaning of this dream is. And so Daniel went on to say that God was revealing the dream that he himself, the king, was that tall tree. 
and that he provided all of these things for so many people and he was great in the kingdoms of this world, but God had commanded that he would lose it all, that he would lose the kingdom, and in fact, that he would be subject uh, to being separated from humanity and he would be driven out from society, and that uh, ultimately, for seven years, that he would lose his kingdom and all of his authority until such time that he had learned that the Lord of heaven, God Almighty, was the sovereign one who gave people authority, that he was ruler over the kingdoms of the earth, and, um, and then these things would be restored. Now, Daniel encouraged the king to repent. <laughs> Return, right there is said, king, you've got to just turn away from, from this whole idea of, of pride and, and arrogance. Um, but the king really didn't. And this is what happened as it says the dream was fulfilled, starting in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was talking, taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses." After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. You see, God did cause a great fall, and interestingly enough, it was through Nebuchadnezzar's mental condition he, he went insane. He, he lost the ability to be with people and to rule. And uh, he was crazy and uh, lived outside and was amongst the animals and, and uh, just lived a wild life for seven years until such time that he bent the knee to the Lord God Almighty and confessed that God was indeed the most powerful and the one who gave authority and power to those to rule over the kingdoms of the world. And when he did that, God restored his sanity and restored the kingdom. And he was able to come and govern in Babylon once again, having confessed that God was great and that he was the ultimate authority. Now, this is quite the story. This is quite the story about what it means to stand before God and how God views pride and arrogance, because Nebuchadnezzar was so very proud. He was so very arrogant about what he had done and how he controlled all of these places and people. And, and God said, no, you're going to learn. You're going to learn that you are not in control here, but that God Almighty, the Lord God of Israel, is actually who is in control of the power and authority in this world. And God humbled Nebuchadnezzar and brought him an attitude adjustment. And I believe that that can be a valuable lesson for us. 
The main point of my message today is this. God is opposed to arrogance and seeking out those who humbly live their lives in relationship with him. You see, God is opposed to the arrogant and the proud, and he wants to see people. He is looking for people that will humble themselves, that he can trust, that he can have a relationship with. And I think that that is a valuable thing for you and for me. It's true that often God does suffer for a time the authority of fools. And we can look across the world and see various politicians and rulers that have made very stupid mistakes and have not acknowledged God. And for a time they have ruled in power, but they ultimately their time has come to an end. And what God is really looking for is people that will serve in positions of authority with a humility towards God, with an idea of righteousness and, and uh, putting God in the right place. Now, you and I do not have to be the leader of a country in order to come under the authority and to humble ourselves before God. I mean, we all have authority in some way. We are all serving uh, in some way before others that are in authority, and there are others that are underneath us. Sometimes it's just our family. Sometimes we have a business and there's employees. And at other times, you know, at the very lowest level, we just look around and see that there are peers people that are our age, that we are friends with, or maybe that we just know. And our words, our attitudes, and our actions are examples to them. And so if we portray pride and arrogance, then that is a bad example. If we portray humility before God to these others that are around us, then that is a good example. And how can we come to a place of resisting the temptations of pride and arrogance? How can we, we resist this, this pitfall of character that is when arrogance takes control and we start to lord it over others? And I think there's some things that we can learn from what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. The first thing that I would say in order to resist pride and arrogance is this. Don't think more highly of yourself than you should. Romans 12.3 says, Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourself, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. You know, the ability to resist this prideful tendency within our character is to come to the place and ask the question, Am I prideful? You know, when we look at our own character first, when we evaluate ourselves, we're able to say, you know, I'm really looking to see what is a flaw in my own life and how to correct it. So before God ever needs to get involved with correcting us, we correct ourselves. And we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. God says that we should consider our own faith and what God has given to us and look at ourselves in a sober manner. And I think that that's important that we examine ourselves. If we want to avoid the pitfall of arrogance, then we need to examine ourselves and say, you know, who am I really? What authority has really been given to me? And look at it in a proper light. If we can keep in check both our, our words and our attitudes and our actions, then we will be much more able to be a good example to others. And we'll find that we are not uh, falling under a, a trap of arrogance. In fact, when we're asking ourselves a question, am I prideful? 
God, by his Holy Spirit, can come along and coach us within how to develop a godly character. Well, coaching is a lot different than correction. (laughs) I would much rather be coached by the Spirit of God than dealt an attitude of judgment and correction from the Spirit of God. Wouldn't you say that you're the same way? Well, the reality is that when we're asking those introspective questions, we can trust God to guide us through them. The second thing I would say about resisting the pitfall of arrogance is that we should humble yourself toward God before he has to humble your arrogance. James 4, verse 6 and 7, As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, just as examining ourselves is a good place to start, acknowledging God's authority is the the next best step. You know, we really need to come and humble ourselves before God. We need to say, who is the real authority in this world? Who is the real authority in my life? Well, that's God Almighty. And when we acknowledge that that's God's position, when we've humbled ourselves, then he is able to work in our lives to guide us and help us. You know, he is the creator of the universe. The very breath that we breathe is by God's own design. And so he holds all of life in his hands, including our own life. When we submit to him, it brings us automatically to a place of humility, saying, you know, I'm not the king of the world. In fact, that's reserved for God Almighty. And so we can come to a place that says, I am submitting to God in all humility. And we'll avoid the pitfall of arrogance. The third way that we can resist this pitfall of arrogance and pride is to be thankful for the things that you have and the opportunities in your life. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourself to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. In fact, this verse in Colossians is just one of many that is encouraging us to be thankful at our very heart, at our very core. You know, we are to uh, exude thankfulness as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. God has given us many things. God has given us many opportunities. And we need to come to him with a grateful heart saying, God, I'm just so thankful. If you are a thankful person, if you approach God with thankfulness, you will find that pride and arrogance fall away. You're not going to fall into a pitfall of uh, this kind of character because your thankfulness will automatically adjust that prideful attitude. And so we need to come to God and say, you know, I am thankful for these things. Let me ask you, what are those things? What are the things that God has given to you? What are the opportunities that God has given to you that you can be thankful for today? And as you look at that, if you need to make a list of those things and and talk to God about them, then I encourage you to do so. But for whatever reason, I want you to be able to say that I'm not going to have an attitude of pride and arrogance. I'm going to be thankful instead. You know, as I come to the end of this message, I want to remind you that humility means thinking of others. It means thinking about God. It means, you know, not concentrating so much on yourself because pride means that you're puffed up about your own achievements. Arrogance means that you're lording it over someone else. So when you submit to God, 
just as Nebuchadnezzar learned that he had to submit to God, then we see that pride and arrogance fall away and that we're able to fall into the right place uh, underneath God's power and authority. So more than any earthly accolade, will you trust God to be uh, your savior, to be uh, the sovereign over you, the king of who you are? Because I know that when we enter into eternity, he will be the one that rewards those that are humble before him. You know, there's no greater opportunity to demonstrate humility than in taking communion. Because when we take communion, we submit to the sacrifice uh, that Jesus Christ made on the cross. So if you want to gather your emblems together, this little bit of juice and a cracker, then I would be happy to lead you in this part of the message, this communion service. Let me remind you that when we approach the communion table, the Lord's Supper, we are doing so with an attitude of humility. We are saying that we could not save ourselves, that we could not provide for the forgiveness of our own sin, that we needed a savior and that Jesus Christ paid a price on the cross so that we could be forgiven. That when his blood was shed, when his body was abused, you know, it was a representation of the life of God that was given up so that we could experience eternal life. Where we should have paid the punishment for our own sin, which is death, but ultimately Jesus paid that for us. Now we are so happy that he rose from the dead and showed us that eternal life is such a, a thing to be hoped for. But the Lord's Supper is really about that sacrifice that he made for our sin on the cross. And so I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but I encourage you to do this. As we read these scriptures, really come with an attitude of humility and saying, God, I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for what you have done for me. I'm so thankful that you have forgiven me. I'm so thankful that you are the Lord of my life. So let's take this, uh, this bread, this little piece of bread, this cracker, and starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this bread together, remembering what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, God. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to offer up his life for me. And continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it says, In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's take it together. Lord God, we thank you so much for sending 
your son Jesus Christ, for the blood that was shed, for the body that was offered up. God, we know that you have provided this great opportunity for us to be forgiven. You have provided this opportunity that we can know you because you've opened the way through Jesus Christ that we can come near. And I pray today, God, that out of the gratefulness of my heart, out of the gratefulness of those that are celebrating with me, God, that you would be blessed because we are honoring you for what you have done. We are thanking you today for all that you have given to us. And we pray that the hope of eternity, that eternal life that you have offered and given to us as a great promise, that you would bring it about, that you would come again, Lord Jesus, and bring your salvation in order to be fulfilled in that way. We thank you for all the promises that you have given. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sharing that with me today. I trust that you will have just a, a wonderful day. Will you stay with me for a few moments as we sing this song, O Come to the Altar? <laughs> 